This is Deep Blue, where we get the true life stories of BYU athletes, coaches, and fans. Here's your host, Jerem Jordan. On today's show, I talked with a guy who you've had in your living room more than many of your relatives. He told Joe Paterno no, and Lavelle Edwards yes, the man who helped back up Jim McMahon, Steve Young, and Robbie Bosco. He's a national champion. He's been doing games on TV for football, men's basketball for the past, I don't know, 35-plus years. He's my friend and coworker. He is Blaine Fowler. What's up, Blaine? Hey. It's a, it's a good time to be a Cougar. Like, all these years I've followed and covered the program, I don't know that there's ever been a better time. It's been incredible. It's been I, really fun. I would argue 81 to 85 is like the golden era of BYU mm-hmm. sports. You're talking Danny Ainge, you're talking men's golf, Natty, you're talking, of course, football, and when you played, which just happened to be your career. I literally we, just named we, the years you right, played. Right, we, call, we called it Camelot at that time. Like, Did you, you know, really? Yeah, we, used to, we said, this is really the Camelot of BYU sports. When we were here, that's what we called it. Because mm. we, you know, we're reflecting back to the, the Kennedys when they were – in the presidency, it was like, oh, it's Camelot. It's all the beautiful people, and everything's great, and the country's great, and <laughs> and everything was glitz and glamour. And when we were when we were at BYU during that time, we used to say, man, this is like the Camelot of BYU. Will it ever be like this ever again? And we're we're approaching that right now. But you know, this we're talking about the era of Corey Snyder and and Wally Joyner, exactly, and Rick yeah. Aguilera, and all of that, and, and, and the '83 Nielsen, team, and yeah. all of those guys in baseball when yeah. we were amazing in baseball and. and Producing major leaguers every year, and Danny and Steve Trumbo and Fred Roberts and and uh, and Greg Kite and that era in basketball, and and that that era led right into like the Jeff Chapman and Michael Smith team that was ranked number two at one time. And then tied that right after and, that. Yeah, and yeah. so it was really those those late seventies, early eighties, that time frame. BYU sports were really really visible, especially the marquee sports, basketball. And football, baseball too. Track was really good. It's the same time that Ed Stone and Doug Padilla and Henry Marsh and all of those guys were Olympians. And I mean, it just it just felt like it's magical, magical time for sports at BYU. Um, and we wondered, could could that ever happen again? Could we ever catch lightning in a bottle with all the sports at one time? And I would submit that right now we're approaching the same. Only a broader, which is good. pretty special. It's more sports now. Yeah, because because it's women's volleyball and soccer. Oh, and women's, women's volleyball top five soccer. It's an amazing time to be at BYU. It really is. Yeah, it's it feels like it did back in the eighties again. And the fun part is, is I've been able to be part of it through that whole time, through which all, is wild through all that history. So, you know, as they came in as a player in eighty one, and at that time, all of the athletes were close to one another. So I was close to Danny and all the guys on the basketball team and, and, uh, uh, close to the guys on the baseball team. We were all in the dorms together. Um, and, and so I, you know, I played with, with all the guys back in those days and were around those guys. And then right when my football career was over, I started broadcasting. So it feels like I'm tied to all of the athletes from about 19, from 1981 on. And even some of the guys from the late seventies, that would come back around, especially if they played quarterback. So I, you know, I've been a close friend with Gifford Nielsen and got to know Mark really well. And of course, I played with Jim and Steve and those guys. But Gary Shad is still doing games. With yeah. Us. So I'm even Gary, Gary's a good friend. Virgil Carter, um, you know, we, I I got to know really well. Eldon Forti, I got to know really well. So in the broadcasting over the years, somehow I get tied back for decades, and so it feels like I've been plugged in. And kind of watched this whole history take place 
over the last 40 plus years um, and have had the opportunity to, to broadcast some of the greatest moments in, in BYU sports. I, I mean, the last time I felt like I feel right now was when Jimmer was playing basketball during that period, and that was he just caught the nation by by storm. But that was that was Jimmer and that basketball team catching the nation by storm. Right now, it's like every sports team it seems like has got the national spotlight and is playing really really well. So this is a fun time. I'm glad I'm still doing it, um, and I, and it's it's easy for me to to look back and compare. And I I think we're rivaling right now. Everything that's ever been done and takes takes us back to where I'm going. Wow, is this even better? And is is it more sports than that early '80s time that we called Camelot? It's interesting because it is more sports. Is it better? Is the question because winning the national championship is quite the moment, and uh, you know that's going to be that's going to be tough to top. But when you when you talk about the Big Twelve invite, that sort of takes BYU into the sphere that maybe it wasn't um, like that in the '80s, where it took the '80s and it took this big 40-year build to get to this point, maybe. Yeah, I know, and I think it does. Because BYU doesn't get um, to the point... I mean, all the things that have happened in recent years have also contributed, but BYU, when when the Big 12 announced the changes, when Texas and Oklahoma said they were going to bail, BYU just became the obvious choice. I mean, nobody even questioned it at that point. And, and you remember back a, a few years ago when there was expansion talk and BYU came really, really close and there were some may, maybe external factors that kept them out. From a sports perspective, they seemed like the obvious choice then, but the league wasn't in need at that time. So when the league actually, when the Big 12 was in need, BYU was never even a question in this. And it's not just because of the last couple of years and because of Zach Wilson being the number two pick this last year. It's a whole history. That's it's it's a foundation across multiple sports that's been built forever. It's the fact that BYU has national championships and Doak Walker Award winners and multiple Outland Trophy Award winners and you know all all of those things matter when it comes time, you know, for the Big Twelve to consider what they're going to do. So I, I kind of feel like all of these athletes I've known for decades and decades have a little bit of a share in the success totally. of BYU moving into this into this Big Twelve conference and being a P five. Um, and not not just recent success. I think it's built over decades. Life lessons. Be ready. Find mm-hmm. the need. Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so let's start from the beginning with you. Mm-hmm. You grew up in Elmira, New York. Everything away from New York City is upstate New York. So where exactly in upstate New York is this? Well, if you if you come out if you come across the GW Bridge and get on Route 17 in Jersey, um. You just you, you head north on Route 17. You go through a little segment of Jersey, and then you come back into New York as you're heading north, up in that West Point area. Then 17 bends to the west and runs all along the New York-Pennsylvania border. And so I'm just a few hours outside of the city on that New York-Pennsylvania border, directly north of Scranton. So people that know where Dunder, Mif- Dunder Mifflin is, mm-hmm. of course, if you watch The Office, <laughs> that's in Scranton. Scranton, Pennsylvania is due south of, of us, so you come north um, – out of Scranton and cross into the New York, uh, over the New York border, you'd, you'd come into the Elmira area. It's called the Southern Tier of New York State. Um, new York City is its own entity. You know, my family's roots are in New York City, especially my mom's roots. Um, and then they migrated out of the city up to upstate where it was less expensive and a little more space. And that's where that's where they raised all of us was in upstate New York. It, it's considered the Finger Lakes region of New York, which is, people think of New York, they think of skyscrapers and you know, the big city, which I do too. And I love, it's my favorite city in the world. And we've spent 
you know, we spent a lot of time in the city when I was growing up, and now we still spend a lot of time there. Um, and our kids, yeah, we have two, you know two of our kids living there. Um, but but this is not what where I grew up is like. Where I grew up is dairy farms and small towns and beautiful lake country with green trees and vineyards and wineries and it's uh, it's a beautiful beautiful place to blo- to grow up. And New York City is known for great basketball. And upstate New York is known for good football. And and that's the western New York and western Pennsylvania and Ohio are all right there. And that little corridor is known for really good football. Um, and so where I grew up in New York was known for football, not necessarily for basketball. But you played both. Mm-hmm. And you did some track too? Or what all yeah, did I, did, I played football, basketball, baseball, and track. And my arms started to get worn out. I was a pitcher um, in baseball. But I'd go from pitching and then go right into summer workouts and be throwing all summer long and then throw the football all fall long because I was in a program where we threw the ball a bunch. Um, and and by the time um, I got to the end of my sophomore year, I was starting to have some elbow issues. And the doctors just said, what, do, what are you going to do? You probably need to choose. You, gonna, you could be a position player in baseball um, and not pitch. You seem to have some promise as a quarterback. Your, your basketball is not hurting you any, um, you know, because you play point guard in basketball. But we think you either need to be a quarterback or a pitcher. And I just thought, if I'm not pitching, I don't want to play baseball. Boring. Like, who wants to stand out in right field, right? <laughs> so so when, I, when you're pitching, you're involved in every single play of the game defensively. And and so I— You wanted to be the alpha. You're the point guard on the basketball team or a quarterback or a pitcher. Right. You wanted to be in the— And so I was just like, you know what? I'll just go over and run sprints and jump. So I, I moved over to the track team and, and ran the 100 and 200 and did high jump and long jump. Um, and so I did the sprints and the jumps and then ran on the relays. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not di- never was a dif- distance guy. I wasn't built like a distance guy. In fact, I remember telling our track coach he wanted us to run 400s um, he said, you should run on our 4 by 4 really. It'd be really good for your 200. And I said, listen, coach, if you move those blocks three feet more than 200 meters, I'm not running because I do not <laughs> want to run more than 200 meters. At least you weren't demanding. <laughs> <laughs> so so I played those. those uh, my, my last two years, I did football, basketball, and track. And it seemed – and I figured that track would complement my football as well. And when, when I was going into my senior year – um, you know, I was doing well in basketball and had an opportunity to go play basketball, but the basketball schools were smaller schools like St. Bonaventure, like some of the A-10 St. Bonaventure, University of Manhattan, um, Niagara, some of the schools around. Um, but for football, you know, it was Pittsburgh and Penn State and Syracuse and Miami and Purdue and big schools that were recruiting and BYU for football. Um, and so... You know, as much as I and I love basketball, still to this day, love basketball, and I played in a really good program. Um, we we lost uh, two games my senior season in basketball. Played in the state semifinals in New York, and in the semifinals we lost to Scarsdale, and that was our only our second loss mm. of that season. Where'd you play those finals? So that year, the finals were in Rochester War Memorial, um, which is really cool because um, for NBC. You know, I've done. I've been under contract with NBC for about the last twelve or thirteen years, and I do the Atlantic Ten every year. St. Bonaventure plays a neutral site game in Rochester War Memorial. That's cool. And I had St. Bonaventure in VCU last year in the Rochester War Memorial. I hadn't been back in that building since we played in the state semifinals, mm, like forty-ish. Yeah, years it's ago. been a long time. And I walked in and I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like 
memories are so thick I can smell them in here. I was just walking around. And I remember we were in this locker room and I remember playing here. And so it was a really cool. It was really a cool moment to be able to go back all those years later and to call a game, college game, of course, in in that arena. Um, but it used to move around back in those days, and then it settled in in, in, in Jimmerstown. Um, after I had graduated, then the states were played in in Jimmerstown for in Glens Falls. Yeah, in Glens Falls. Oh, interesting. That was kind of where they played small, it for a while. Yep. Small city, small upstate north yeah. of Albany. Um, and I'm not sure where they play them anymore. They're, they've moved someplace else now. Hmm. So, um, but yeah, it, it, so decided decided that football was what I was really going to focus on. So you mentioned all those big names. What was it like being courted by those teams? And I mentioned that you told Joe Pondo. Uh, what was that experience like? All of that. Um, it was, recruiting back then was so different. I just feel like it was a free for all back in those days. <laughs> was that good or bad? It was. When I look back on it, probably bad. During the time, it seemed good. Um, like I don't. It, coaches could just show up. Now there's dead periods. Would they interrupt? There's things? a certain times. That, oh, my senior year in high school, I got pulled out of class two or three times a day, and the, I'd be one. I'd go into class, and they'd come over the speaker, um, and so I'm in calculus. Mrs. Lords, um, is Blaine Fowler in there? Yes, he is. Blaine Fowler can, can, to no, the office. It would be the principal. It would be Marty Harrigan. Oh, he'd and, walk and Mar- in himself. Mar- no, he would pipe in on the last speaker. Hey, Mrs. Lars, this is Marty Harrigan. Is the Blaine Fowler in that class? Yes, he is. Can you please send him down to my office? And she'd go, hey, principal wants you in his office. I'd be okay. And I'd walk out. But it was always a coach just stopping by. You know, a Penn State coach, a Syracuse coach, a Pitt coach, a Miami's coach. It was Howard Snellenberger one time just stopped by the office and then came by the house. Oh, wow. So it was like they could just stop in. And so it was really quite disruptive, and for a, you know, you already think you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and then all these people are just showing up and, and talking to you all the time. Um, and we had a couple of big, other really big recruits on my high school team. My, um, especially my junior year, um, we, were, we were ranked in the top three in the state. My senior year, we were the number one team in the state in, of New York. We, we beat the perennial power, Union Nenecott, that was always nationally ranked in the in the. In football, they didn't play state championships back in those days. The state is just too big, so you played sectional championships. But one section in New York was bigger than the whole state of Utah's system. So we played Union Endicott in the sectional championships and beat them my senior year. And we had Marty Chalk. Uh, my tight end, Marty Chalk, was 6'5", 240-pounder that started for four years at Syracuse at tight end. I had Ricky Allen as, as my primary target at wide receiver. Ricky um, was one of the top baseball recruits in the country. Ricky's dad, Rich Allen, was the two-time nationally most valuable player with the Phillies, who also ran a 10-400 meters back in those days um, at wide receiver. So we had quite a few coaches around with those guys on the team as well. Um, and it was unbelievably disruptive. I didn't. I felt like it was cool at the time. I loved being taken out of class. I don't even know how I got any grades. <laughs> That year, and our principal Marty Harrigan was an old football coach. He used to coach. So he's eating it up. Too. He was he coached when Ernie was there. So when Ernie Davis was there, um, so Ernie Davis went to my high school. Oh, yeah, okay. my, I went to Ernie Davis Junior High School. Oh wow! And then Ernie Davis, who is the first African American to win the Heisman Trophy and yep. an All American at Syracuse battle. and the number one pick in the draft, um, to go join Jim Brown in the Cleveland Browns backfield because Jim was also a Syracuse grab. Um, and then, if, if anybody's watched the movie The Express, um, yeah, that's my hometown guy. That's Ernie, Ernie that's Davis, cool. and my my dad knew Ernie, and 
And uh, your dad knew Ernie. Yeah, an unbelievable individual, like one of the most gracious human beings. And you know, I didn't know him because he passed before I, right when I was just born. But um, back he was back in '63, and I was born in '63. But his legend about just who he was and the stories my dad would tell about him and that Marty Harrigan, my principal, would tell about him were, were amazing. And then Al Millette, who was the big sports writer in town that wrote all the articles about me, he's the, in the movie, he's the one that tips off Syracuse's coach that there's this kid down in Elmira, the Elmira Express, Ernie Davis, ah, and Al Millette is in that movie. That's cool. And Al Millette was a really dear friend of mine that I kept in touch with for years, years after I left. So I, I left. So I loved that Al was featured in that in that movie, The Express. But um, so Marty's a big time. My principal's a big time football guy. So he loved when these coaches would stop by. He loved to take me out of class, come down, and he would sit with the with with Don McPherson, Syracuse's coach, or with Joe Paterno, a Penn State's coach, or with Howard Schnellenberger, Miami's coach. He loved for the three of us to sit and just talk football in his office while I was supposed to be in learning calculus and wasn't, right? <laughs> and so it, the way they approach recruiting now is just so much more restricted and organized and fair. Um, it was a free-for-all. And it it seemed really fun at the time, but I too intrusive – and, I, and I'm glad it wasn't that way when my kids were being recruited. It was just crazy, a crazy time. So, so. what official visits or what visits did you take? And who, who did you almost go to besides BYU? So I um, – Pittsburgh, Penn State – I actually did a visit to Wake Forest. You could take six visits back in those days. Pittsburgh, Penn State, Wake Forest, um, BYU, Syracuse are the visits I took. Um, I was scheduled to do a visit to Purdue, but it was after my BYU week, and after I went to BYU, I committed, and I didn't do the Purdue visit. Um, and so, I mean, the big three around me were, were were everybody from home wanted me to go. They either wanted me at Pittsburgh, Penn State, or Syracuse. And, and Pitt and Penn State were perennial national championship contenders. Um, my junior year in high school, Pitt, Pitt won the national championship with Matt Cavanaugh at quarterback and Tony Dorsett at tailback. and. Gordon Jones at wide receiver, and you know, and Penn State had had been a big time power for a long, long time, and always competing for nat- natties, and then as an independent, by the way, yeah, the and then time. Syracuse had this great history in my town because Ernie played there, mm. you know, and then our assistant principal, um, uh, uh, Mr. Fitzgerald, he was an offensive lineman on that national championship team at Syracuse, blocked for Ernie. Mm. And so there was a lot of pressure yeah. to go to Syracuse, and then one one of, we were friends of the Sindelar family, um, and Joey Sindelar from my high school was a was an all American golfer breaking all of Jack Nicholas's records out at Ohio State, and so mm. he was trying to get me to come out to Ohio State and follow him out there. Um, so, Blaine, so the, you were a big deal. So those were the those were us. <laughs> yeah, it was a fun time. Yeah. It was a fun time, and so I was the. Um, the player of the year in, in upstate New York, which is basically the player of the year in New York, because upstate New York plays very high level football, and New York City does not play high level football. Um, like if you're the New York City public schools basketball player of the year, you're pretty much the state player of the year. If right, you're the upstate right. New York football player of the year, you're pretty much the state player of the year because um, they split it out into those two two divisions. So, so as the player of the year there. Um, and uh, in my senior year, and we had really, really good football team and great coaching. Um, Dexenko was my coach. He had played quarterback at Baldwin Wallace in Ohio, who was way ahead of his time just throwing the football over the place. So he brought that offense. So I was the beneficiary of playing in an offense where we just threw it all over the place, which a lot of teams weren't doing back then. And in college, they weren't doing it back then. That's what the, the fact that I was LDS, 
But even more, the fact that BYU was throwing it all over the place like I was in high school was a huge draw to me. And I had not decided I was going to BYU. Um, and uh, I kind of was leaning toward, toward going to Penn State. And we were watching the 1980 Holiday Bowl, my dad and I. This is your senior year. Yeah, my senior year. And I, you know, I took visits in January. Right. So I wasn't not even thinking I wasn't maybe not even take a visit to BYU. Oh, OK. Uh, and, a few weeks later. Right. And I'm like, I'm thinking I'm, I'm probably gonna go to Penn State. Do I really want to take all these visits? I'm probably gonna go to Penn State. And uh, my dad and I were watching that 1980 Hollywood. My dad, because he came out here to school, he, he got his bachelor's degree here. Um, he wanted me to come take a visit. And he's he, from the time he was here, and he and, and the Forties were next door neighbors in Wymont Terrace, Eldon Fortai. So they were dear friends. He had such a fun experience out here. He wanted me to have that experience and at least look at it. And uh, I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I love the way they're throwing it, but they're so far away from home. Everybody wants me to be here close to home. I don't know. Probably, maybe Penn State. The whole rest of our family went to bed. When BYU was down by 20 with like two minutes to go, and they came back and won, I looked over at my dad and I go, I need to go on a visit out there. I think I maybe need to go there. <laughs> it's that like that one game that changed my entire view of BYU. Wow. When I, when I watched Jim McMahon just, just fling it all over the place in that fourth quarter, I just thought, why do I want to go to Penn State and hand the ball off? Like, look what this dude is doing. He is ridiculous, and he's about my height. You know, and at the time, Todd Black was the, was the quarterback at Penn State. He was my host on my visit, and I was thinking, man, Todd's six five. You know, Pitt, Matt Cavanaugh was six three. BYU's got like this five eleven, six foot dude throwing it all over the place and breaking NCAA records. I got to reconsider this thing. Maybe maybe that's where I should be going. Maybe I should be going to BYU. So that game changed my my whole perspective hmm. on on where I where I would go. And funny thing is, is Miami had been in a real. They were not good. And Howard Schnellenberger came to school, and then he came by my house later that day. And he was the coach right before um, uh, Jimmy Johnson down there. And he's the one that took him to their – put him on the national championship role, right, before Jimmy got there, got him – rebuilt them. And he came in and said, come down to Coral Gables, and this is and, – and we're going to build it around the quarterback. We're going to throw the ball. And I, I'm already collecting a bunch of talent. They're all just young. I'm telling you. You give us a year or two, we're going to be competing for national championships every single year. And then he laughed, and my dad said, what about Miami? Like, nice weather, and he seems like a really good guy. And I go, Dad, Miami, they're terrible in football. Why would I go there? <laughs> like, why would I go to a losing program like Miami? While I was in college, they won two national championships. <laughs> you only won one, Blaine. Right. So, so, and here's the funny thing. Miami won two while I was in college. Penn State won a national championship while I was in college, and we won a national championship while I was in college. So, if you I would have picked, you were either, going to be okay. If, if any of those three, I would have been all right. I would have, yeah. I would have gotten a natty at one point or another. <laughs> so, How, okay, you tell Joe Podnell. What's that experience like? Um, you know, I didn't even, I didn't. Now I'm thinking about. It, I didn't tell Joe Pa. No, because Coach, Willi- Coach Williams was the guy that was requ- responsible for our area. Gotcha. And so he was my main contact. When you when you sit down and you talk with Jopa, though, um, their whole recruiting angle was really interesting. Um, you know, you go to Syracuse and you're like, hey, we're building this program and you'd be just a huge part of it. We need guys like you. You know, you got to come here. Ernie came here. He's from your high school. The legacy and they're, the, all the selling's going on, right? 
You, you go sit down with Joe Potty, he goes, Blaine, this is Penn State. We're offering you a scholarship. That's all I should have to say. If that doesn't carry enough weight, then you're probably not the right guy. Oh, wow. I, that hit me. I was like, yeah, this is Penn State. They, they compete for national championships every year. They sold out crowds, great college environment. Yeah, I, I should be grateful to have – like I, he, he had me believing that I should be so grateful that they were <laughs> offering me a scholarship there. Um, so a little different recruiting angle. And they were, they were the dominant team close to home for me back at, at that time. Um, and so, and then Coach Williams, he'd follow up with me, you know, every week, what's going on, what's going on. And we did, after the visits, you know, I still, I still had Wake Forest, BYU, and Purdue to visit after that. I did Wake Forest. I really enjoyed that. Um, John Makovic was the head coach at Wake Forest at that time, and they were really throwing the ball around, too. They were the other team that was throwing it. And John ended up being the head coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. He was a coordinator with the Cowboys and the head coach of the Chiefs. Um, it's funny how small the football world is because during the strike year, Back in the mid '80s, John McAvick was the Chiefs coach, and he wanted me to come play as a scab for the Chiefs because he remembered me when he recruited me out of high school. And you didn't do it? No, I didn't want to go across the lines. <laughs> so, and I'm glad wait, I, wait, wait, I'm wait, glad I didn't. You didn't want to cross the lines. Were you on one side of them? The no, lines? no, no. So the 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 regular players were holding out, and they wanted they were right. trying to sign but guys. But you weren't in the NFL. Right? No, I wasn't in the NFL. You at the just time. didn't want to offend. Like, I didn't want to. I didn't want to go. Teammates at BYU. Yeah, I had teammates that were in the NFL. You know and. Part You're of the telling NFL. me you could have been the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs right now? For a short period of time. <laughs> That's amazing. It wasn't worth it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Not for a short period of time. That's the greatest thing I've ever uh, heard. You didn't know that. I yeah. didn't know that. Well, and the connection That's was That's why we chat. And, and the connection was that I knew John. Yeah. And and he was a really gracious, really great human being. And uh you know, he's been until he asked you to cross he's the He's been line. a coordinator with the Cowboys, he was a coordinator at Tech. Like John had a wonderful career in coaching. Um but uh, he, you know, that connection from when he recruited me out of high school, um, he's like, carried over all these years later. And he's like, hey, you know what? What about Fowler? Like he's he's not in the league. I know <laughs> What's that. He up to? Yeah, I know that he signed in the USFL and that league folded. Um, Hold up, you did? Yeah, Blaine. I'm learning so much about you. Keep going. So, so I had signed with Memphis in the USFL. And and it's coming back, Blaine. You can still play in the USFL. No, I don't. <laughs> so it, it, yeah. Anyhow, we don't have to get into all of that. So I had uh, okay. We I guess we can get into it, but <laughs> but but anyhow, because we were talking we we're talking about Coach Williams and so yes, I went and I was really impressed with Wake Forest. Yes, but but I I went to the, I went on the BYU visit and then I just said this this is where I need to be. How I did just, you know that? I just felt completely at home, mm. and and I remember thinking. Not only are these guys just throwing the heck out of it, um, I got a good chance to start here at some point. I have to compete for it, um, and I've been—I've grown up in New York, where I was the only LDS kid in my school in my league. You were comfortable you know, being my closest the only guy, church probably. friends live thirty miles away. So you were comfortable being the only LDS kid, yeah. if that's right. But, but, but when you come when here, I came you out here, I'm different? like, oh. That's like a whole different deal. This is something I've never experienced my whole life. Gotcha. I grew up without ever having members of my faith as friends, mm. ever. So that would be cool. And and I just thought, yeah, this, this is what I want to do. And and then, of course, Doug Scoville was recruiting me early on, and then he, he left and became the offensive coordinator for the 
Eagles. And I remember when Doug was recruiting me early, like my junior year and that, you know, I was saying, well, who's like, who's, you guys are recruiting Sean Salisbury, you know, out of SoCal. And he was the number one overall recruit in the country. I'm like, is Sean coming? Because if Sean's coming, it's pretty obvious that's who you guys are going to play. That's right? what happened with Robbie, right? right. Robbie was waiting. Ro- and so too. Robbie and I are both waiting. And here's the interesting thing. Robbie and I both knew that they were recruiting each other. But I was like, I'll, I'll compete with Robbie Bosco. Like, he's a Northern Cal player of the year. Big deal. I'm the New York player of the year. But, I'm, <laughs> but I know if you sign Sean, the national player of the year, I have no shot. Mm. But I'll come compete with Rob. Um, and I remember Doug Scoville telling me, I was like, well, who do you have? He's like, well, we got Eric Krismarzik, who I think is a fine, fine player. But he's going to be, by the time you register, he's going to be at least two years and maybe three years in front of you. And he's probably the guy that's going to play after Jim. And I remember saying to Doug, well, what about Steve? Because I knew Steve from, from back east, and I knew that he was here. How did you know Steve? Because he's from Connecticut. I was from New York. That's like one stake away in the church back there. Yeah. You know? And You had heard of him? Yeah. Had you met him? I hadn't met him, but I, I'd heard but of him. you knew of him. Yeah. Because okay. um, he was a pretty big deal in Connecticut, option quarterback. You know? But you're like, hey, New York. Yeah. Little and, UConn football. Well, very few kids from New, New, um, the Northeast were on BYU's team. So I, you know, I was like, "Who's you from?" Immediately made I'm like, "Who's from the Northeast?" Is there Steve Young? Oh yeah, I remember hearing about him a little bit. Mm. Um, so I remember saying to Doug Scoville, um, "Well, what about?" And, and he says, "We've got Eric Chris Mars. We had Jim Kimball. Jim ended up transferring to Utah State and starting at quarterback at Utah State." And he goes, "And I go, well, what about what about Steve Young?" He goes, "Steve Young's not playing quarterback here." <laughs> and I go, "Oh, why not?" He goes, "He's left-handed. I will never play a left-handed <laughs> He's quarterback." He's left-handed. He was a handsist. He goes, my, I will never have a left-handed quarterback. That's what Douglas Goble said to me. I'm like, okay, well, I, evidently I'm not going to compete with Steve Young. So yeah, I was going to say, he's he's too early for a lefty with the Eagles probably, right? Yeah, anyway. So so he <laughs> he uh, so I'm, I'm convinced, well, Eric and Jim are going to be two or three years ahead. So I'm just competing with Robbie Bosco. And what they would sell you on at that time was, if you start for us here, you're a first or second round draft pick. Like you're playing in the NFL. So just come out. Because gifts in the NFL, gifts in the NFL, Mark marks in the, in the NFL, NFL, and Jim was and Jim, just and, and Verge fi- had been years before. And but, Jim is about to be after. And Jim's going to be a first round draft pick. Right, he's going to be a first round draft pick, and, and you then, know that. And then Steve's the USFL number Jim, one. Pick. Jim's just broken seventy six NFL, seventy uh, six NCAA records his junior year. That's the greatest to me until ties ninety. That's the greatest season in BYU history. Believe me, because maybe eighty three and eighty one, um, we're watching every game of eighty. To prep for the teams we're playing again in the league. Yes. 1980s season is the best quarterback season I've ever seen in college football. Out of Jim McMahon. Are that, you saying to this day? To this day. Oh my gosh. And well, I watched every single play of that season on film to get ready for our games in 81. First 4,000 yard passing year by anybody. He was ridiculous. He was unconscious the whole year. It was ridiculous what he was doing. He was unconscious on the weekend sometimes too. Yes, he was. No. <laughs> No, it, what he was doing, and Jim was unbelievably mobile. He could throw, move in either direction, like just flick the ball out there 65 yards. He was, I'm convinced if Jim goes to a, a West Coast offense like San Francisco, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Mm. But he goes to Chicago where you got Walter, and so he's just tossing the ball to sweetness and running around and diving yeah. head first and, and all that. Defense is and still was a phenomenal player, right, in the league. But. You know, he's in a different kind of offense. If he goes to a West Coast offense, if he goes to the Chargers or he goes to San Francisco, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. He was that good. To this day, I believe that's the best college football quarterback season I've ever seen was his his junior year. So and then I got to come play with him. You know, his senior Are you year. starstruck at first? 
Yeah, and then I realized that he's an unbelievable teammate because he's going in, um, and this is the fall, and he's, seven, let's say, seven on seven, uh, prep scout. That's when you don't have any D or offensive linemen. It's just your seven guys on offense against the linebackers in secondary on the defense, those seven, to, to hone your passing and for them to hone their coverage. And he's going in and I'm watching what he's doing. Then when he comes out, and then as a freshman, then Steve goes in, um, and then Robbie and I are back there. Jim comes back and stands next to me every time he's out, and he's like, okay, kiddo. He, he, to this day, he still calls me kiddo when I see him. He's like, mm-hmm. okay, kiddo, let's talk about what you're seeing. And and my, my pre-snap, what do you got? I'm going, okay, it looks like too deep. And he goes, no, 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 look, look at the corners. Like, they're they're open. They've got their ba- they've got their butts to the sideline. Like, so I swear I learned as much my freshman year from Jim McMahon saying, okay, kiddo, what do you got? As I learned the whole rest of my life in football. Like, I, wow. I got a PhD in football my freshman year from Jim McMahon. Wow. And and our our offensive or our, our quarterbacks coach was Ted Tolner, who was also an unbelievably brilliant football mind. Um, and so I learned from him. And then Mike Holmgren comes in my sophomore year and coaches us the next four years. And I'm sitting in the room with Steve Young and Robbie and Mike Holmgren um, for the next four years while Mike's teaching us everything. So we're what an we're, unbelievable we're, oh, period. We're learning from the masters, yeah. right? So so I feel like I got a PhD in football, but I feel like it started. With Jim, and so I was unbelievably starstruck when I came on campus. But I quickly realized, man, this dude's an awesome teammate. He's amazing. Like I'm learning so much. I just want to stick right by his side as much as I can, and learn as much as I can from him. And so I I credit Jim with a lot of my ability to broadcast because he made me look at things in the game mm. that normal quarterbacks don't even look That's at. That's where it began for you. Yeah. You just didn't know it at the time. Yeah. So I look back and I'm like, oh, you know what? I'll say – early in my career I would say something. I'm like, where did I come up with that? And I think, oh, that's a discussion Mac and I had, Jimmy Mac and I had, mm. you know, about how you – a pre-snap of this or on your first step you got to see that or this yeah. is when the ball needs to come out or, you know, this is where the weakness is in that defense. This is where I like to go if I see this. This is how I like to throw a receiver open, you know. It's so a lot of the things that I to this day say are things that I probably learned from Jim early on, um, and and you know, and Steve was an unbelievable student of the game. So and he was he was like a sponge with Jim too. I mean, Steve, you gotta, I've never seen somebody come from point A to point B at such a trajectory in any sport as Steve Young from when I first saw him as a sophomore to you know, the peak of his career in the National Football League. That dude worked like nobody I've ever seen to hone his game. He was brilliant. He was a tremendous athlete, but he made himself into one of the greatest players in the history of the game. And I got to watch it side by side for four years. And I I can tell you that nobody's worked harder at their craft. And isn't it funny how all the great ones, like you think about Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson, they're just like, they're all gym. Steve was a gym rat of football. Those guys are gym rats. Like, they just constantly want to play. They want to learn. They, and no matter how great they got, they still wanted to grind. That's Steve, you know. Mm. So I got to watch Jim, who was a Ph.D. in football, and then learn from Steve, who was a Ph.D. in football. And have Mike Holmgren. Andy Reid is our graduate assistant working with quarterbacks. One, one year, <laughs> Mike Leach was out there as a volunteer assistant working with quarterbacks. At the time, did Mike display any – curious behavior or smarts that led you to think that there was any possibility he could be something? Mike Leach? Yes. I remember what we used to say about Mike. It's like, (laughs) I'd be like, what's the word that describes Mike? He's kind of eccentric. Even back then. Even back then. Yeah. So I had a game. I'm trying to remember where Mike was. 
It might have been really early when he was at North. No, I think it was when he was at Tech. And I was down in Texas, and I went into his office, and he had pirate stuff all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And 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 Mike, <laughs> Mike, we had we had connected a few times over the years, and I would remind him. He's like, of course, Blaine, I remember. I, would, I remember when we were together, you know. So he he would remember, like and we would reminisce. When he brought remember, remember the old field house, and we would talk about stuff. Yeah. Mike loves to reminisce about his time at BYU and what he learned, and how he just kind of like just decided he was going to come and volunteer and hang around Lavelle and learn everything that he could. Mike, Mike is. He's a savant. Like he's brilliant. Um, he he hears something and he never forgets it. And he's just got an interesting mind. And he's very eccentric still to this day. But I went in his office and there's all this like pirate ships and bottles and pirate things on the walls. And, and I go, I go, Mike, what's with all the pirate stuff? Because I this was before everybody knew about. Like I go, what's with all the pirate stuff? And he goes, This is his exact words, dude. I am so into pirates right now. <laughs> I go, what? What? And he says, yeah, like every, like their culture is so interesting. Like I read stuff all about, I've read about their culture and their monetary system. Like, so it's not just, hey, I like cool pirate boats in in a bottle. It's like, have you ever studied the pirate culture? It's fascinating. And he starts telling me all about the pirate culture and how their monetary system worked. And uh, like, he knows, like, he is a genius, and anything that he gets an interest in, he studies it just – he becomes a gym rat about anything that yes. he gets interested in. And so he just yes. went down this pirate thing for a while where he learned everything there was to know about it. So he he's hilarious too, by the way. He's got that dry sense of he humor. He is so funny. So, But one of the most brilliant football minds, especially offensive minds, has ever been in the game. And, you know, the root started here. The root started here. Um, so, I mean, you think about the people that were on the staff that, at BYU at that time, Fred Whittingham Sr., who went to be the defense coordinator for the Rams back with, with John Robinson. Um, Fred was my primary recruiter because he was familiar with the Northeast and he was from back there. Um, you know, Dick Felt, who was a legendary, you know, played in the NFL, legendary defensive mind. Roger French, who I think was one of the greatest line coaches ever, multiple programs in the Big Ten and, and, here, and here with us. Norm Chow who everybody knows Norm's history with USC and with the Titans and the head coach at Hawaii, um, you know Mike Holmgren, Andy Reid, Kyle Whittingham was a graduate assistant with us. He was a teammate and then a graduate assistant and the head coach at Utah, all-time winningest coach in Utah history now. Um, I look back at those days and look at the team photos and those great records, and I used to think, man, we must have been really, really talented to win all those games. And then I start looking at the top row of coaches, and I'm like, mm. You know, on second thought, maybe we were unbelievably well coached. And some names that people don't even know, like like Jim Lind, um, who coached here for a couple of years with Mike Holmgren, who ended up being like the director of player personnel for the Seahawks and was a linebacker's coach there with Holmgren. Um, you, you got guys like Charlie Stubbs, who was a coordinator at UNLV when they led the nation in total offense and then was a coordinator at Alabama for a national championship and then the head coach at Nichols State. All of those guys came through here. You know, and I, I could – so the coaching staffs that we had here at BYU when I was here were amazing talent. Um, and I I credit that run of success to – sure, we had some talented players, especially we had great talent with our guys that started at quarterback and some really good tight ends and receivers, and we really dominated the line of scrimmage. But that coaching staff was second to none in the country, and we just out-coached everybody we played. 
back in those days. It was mm-hmm. really really a fun time to be here. Really was special. Uh, okay, so let's talk about your BYU career. Because you back up all these guys. Obviously, we talk a lot about it because it was a huge game, but the national championship game against Michigan. Were you in a position where you would you would come and, and in a bunch, because BYU's blowing out people, right, as the backup, and sometimes there's an injury here and there. Um, what was it like to come out in that national championship game and just make sure that ship stayed afloat? Because you moved the ball down the field. Was it? Remind me. Was it one drive? Was it two drives? We had a couple of is, drives. A couple of drives. This is the biggest moment in the history of BYU football. You, you've there's a lot of pressure on your shoulders in that moment. I imagine. Yeah, I it, it was it was interesting because by the time it was it was a different time back in those days. Like Robbie and I came in and you know we're highly recruited guys. Both had mentioned on a lot of All American lists. We come in with no expectation to play as a freshman. That's not how it works at BYU. You come in. You back up an All-American first-round draft pick, and maybe your junior and senior year you play. And if you do, you go to the NFL. So you bide your time and you learn. So by the time Robbie and I are both juniors, we've already this that's our fourth year in the program. We've been learning from Jim McMahon. We've been learning from Steve Young. We've been learning from Ted Tolner and Mike Holmgren. That's what Jaron Hall had in yeah, this season. Jaron is much more prepared than Zach was when he got thrown in there as a oh, freshman. Yeah. Or John Beck when he this got Jaren's thrown in there as a freshman. fourth year right. in the program, like you're saying. That's why he, yeah. he's got he's a whole different – and that's how it used to be. And so by the time we're in our junior year, we've literally taken tens of thousands of snaps in practice. We've taken snaps in games. Um, the game's not fast to either of us at that point. Robbie's a starter or for me. And I'd played, you know, some as a sophomore, um, backing up Steve. And Robbie'd played as a sophomore backing up Steve because we traded redshirt year. Like I redshirted one year and Robbie backed up, and then Robbie redshirted and I backed up. Opposite of that, for, I backed up the first year and uh, Steve's junior year and Robbie redshirted. Then Steve's senior year, um, I redshirted and Robbie backed up, which probably hurt me because. That put you behind Robbie. Yeah, because Steve um, missed a little. He got knocked out a few times of games, and Robbie had to play the year we were going into spring ball to compete. So then he's sort of the guy going into yeah, and that hurt a little bit. Probably my ability to compete. But we neck and neck. Um, But you know, I'm going into there, and the way Mike Holmgren coached us up was, dude, you got to you have to be ready to go. Like you could easily be our starter. You could start anywhere in the country. You still have a chance to play professional football. You're good enough. so that's how you got to approach the game, and that's how you would approach the game. Um, so I remember, and I played a bunch that year, you know. Um, so now, but it's it's the national championship game. We're playing Michigan, and people are like, "Oh, they're six and five. That was a team that got a, phen- a phenomenal start. They're ranked as high as three, right? And then and then Jim and then Jim Harbaugh, Harbaugh got knocked out, Broken and the, and then they lost a running back. Um, but then they lost like six guys off of their defense, and they were all back for the bowl game. This was a lights-out defense early in the year mm. that got everybody back for their bowl. And we knew that going in. We're like, guys, this is not a 6-5 and five team. This is a team that's got all the horses back of a team that was really a top-10 team. So so don't look at this as a 6-5. and five. And on the field, that was evident that they were really good defensively. And oh, by the way, multiple teams that said no to matching up with you. Right, nobody wanted to come play us. Yep. Um, and we were really good on defense that year. And remember, we turned the ball over too many times in that game. That shouldn't have been a close football game. Um, but so I, Robbie gets knocked out of the game, and I remember thinking to myself, yeah, this is what we've been talking about. Like, this is what Holmgren's been talking about. And sometimes when you're young, you're just, you know, Mark Pope was saying to me the other night, what he loves about Foose is he's too young to know that he's not supposed to be able to play like that. He goes, I just hope he just stays young like this forever and never realizes that the moment's big. 
that he always just treats the moment like he's up to the moment. Yeah. And so I, I, I just remember maybe a little too cocky, or the, but but it was a good thing because I was just like, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, this is the moment we've been preparing for. I'm fine. I'm just as good as Rob. I can come in and play. Literally five years for you, right? Yeah. I, I, I've done this for a long time. I know this offense. And and right when Robbie comes out and they're talking about, can he go back in? And he's like, no. Mike grabs me, Holmgren, and he, and he says, okay, listen. I know your skill set. I'm going to call play. I'm going to call your best plays. We're going to call the plays that fit you. We're going to move you around. We're going to do the things that you like to do. You got this. And I remember thinking, yeah, I, I got this. And he's got me. Mike knows my skill set. He and Norm are going to call plays for me that fit my skill set. And we did. And I think we really completed it. The time I was in there were like five of seven. They did the things that are comfortable for Ran me. Ran for a first down Yeah, we, too, right? We, you know, and um, – so I, I wasn't really nervous at all. And um, Robbie had been kind of beat up that year, so I took a lot of the reps in practice all year long. Mm. And so it wasn't unfamiliar. Like, I get in that huddle with that first team, oh, well, that's what we've done all year long in practice. you know. And so that wasn't unfamiliar to me. And, uh, you know, Trevor managed at center. I'd taken a bazillion snaps from Trevor over the years, right? And those faces up front with, with uh, um, Craig Garrick and – and Robert and I at the guards, and Louis Wong, and and Dave Wright at the tackles. I've been in there with those guys a lot. Kelly Smith and Lockay, and and that receiving card thrown a bazillion balls to those guys. So it just seemed very very comfortable. And all those guys were like, we got you. Don't worry. Like, of course, every receiver after every play is like, I'm dude. I am wide open on every Especially play. Especially Glenn Klaus. Oh, Glenn was open. Glenn <laughs> never ran a route. Even if he was triple teamed. He was wide open. <laughs> and so I, I remember I remember that it felt very comfortable out there, and I felt confident we could move the ball, and we did. Um, and then I do remember um, – you remember a play, if you've ever watched it, where I, Mike Hammerstein comes off the edge, and, and he gets by. I can't remember who he got by. Um, but I ducked under, and I almost got tackled. Craig Garrett kind of threw me back up on my feet, and I scrambled out, and I ran right to the first down marker and got knocked out of bounds. And then they had a measure, and uh, – so we were waiting for the measurement. I was waiting for a play to come in. I remember that my my uh, folks had always told me, my dad especially, is like, hey, you got to take time to stop and smell the roses, so to speak. He didn't use those words, but it's just like when you're in a big moment, sometimes you just got to step back and be grateful for that great for that big moment. Because when you look back, you'll feel bad that you didn't take it all in, right? So I remember while I was waiting for Cause to bring the play in, I stepped out of the huddle and I spun around and, you know, 78,000 or however many are there in Qualcomm. And I remember thinking to myself, hey, I'm playing out here right now. I didn't think about it until that point. And we're several plays into this thing. And I'm, I'm thinking, we're playing for a national championship right now. I'm out here running this team. All these people are here. People are watching on national television. This is awesome. So I took just 10 seconds to soak it all in. And then Kaz came in with the play, and he's like, okay, red right, 66, Why bench have to lay. I'm like, all right. Then right back into the, the huddle. Play? I think it was the play, actually. That's um, amazing. And and so then we're right back in the huddle, and I'm calling the play, and we're back at it. But I was so grateful that I like took that moment because I remember that moment, right? Mm. It's And sometimes these guys go along their whole career, and they never take time to kind of step out of it for a second and go, this is cool. And I don't know if Jim or ever – I know when I was calling games when Jim was playing, there were some moments when I was just stepping back when I was calling the games going, okay, this is amazingly cool. But I think players sometimes don't take the time They're taught not to, to. to do that, right? Because they got to stay in the moment right. and focus. But, but I think you can step out of the moment once in a while and appreciate it and yes. get back in the moment, right? Yes. 
And so, so I did that in that game, and That's cool. we moved the ball, and um, you know we had a penalty, we punted, we got the ball back, we moved it down. Robbie came back in, we went on to, we went down and scored, but we didn't lose any momentum. We didn't turn the ball over. We kept moving the ball down the field. We possessed the ball. It's what we needed to do until Robbie could get his knee feeling right and get back in there. Um, I would have been glad to stay in there. There was an argument with Mike and Norm and Lavelle because they, I know that Mike felt that Robbie might be a little too immobile. And then Michigan was just going to tee off on him. And it might be okay to have me in there and move me around a little bit more. And in the end, you know, Lavelle's uh, opinion, which matters the most, was, now Robbie's the guy that got us here. This, if he can go, I want him to go. Mm. And so so they put Robbie back in. But there was some discussion about just leaving me in because was Robbie really going to be sound enough to get it done? And obviously he got it done. Yeah. Uh, although we just turned it over way too many times. Turned it over way too many times. Defense, Would we have turned it over as many times with you in there? No. <laughs> and 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 the defense saved us in that game. Yes. Defense was incredible. you know incredible. They in sealed that game. the win on the final drive. Absol- absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Defense was, and and those two years, the '84 and '85, because we were really good again in '85. Our defense was just so good. We so much credit for how good we were offensively. Our defense was so good those years. Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, so. <coughs> Will you make a note just on the cough right there? Yeah. Hi. What's your name, by the way? What? I can't hear you. But anyway, awesome. Thank you. Do, do, do this. No. <laughs> do sign language. I don't even know it. But yeah. Do. Okay. So you finish 85. Then what? USFL, CFL? So I had, I had, I had um, multiple CFL and USFL teams that were contacting me, and so I went – I flew out to Toronto and did a workout for the Toronto Argonauts. Um, I, um, Calgary, uh, I did a workout for Calgary. Um, and um, both teams, it's interesting because it's a whole different deal. I don't even know how it works now. They can only have so many non-Canadians. You know, yeah. But quarterback is a position where they usually did. Um, and so both wanted me. Calgary ends up hurrying up and sending me a contract offer. And I've got you know my agents looking over it with me. At the same time, the Memphis Showboats reach out and say, "Don't go up to Canada. The money's better down here. Sign with us. We don't have a backup quarterback right now. Walter Lewis from Alabama is our starter. Come down, back up Walter. Um, you know you'll get an opportunity to play. Pay twice as much. Do you not have to, the exchange was bad back then? Sign with us. So my agent and I are. Weighing both sides of this, and we decide. Not bad for the backup at BYU, right? So we decide, let's go with the USFL deal. Um, so we tell we tell Calgary no, we appreciate the offer. Um, tell Toronto no, and we sign with with Memphis, and we and we start getting all the stuff from them. We get I get their workout, like I'm literally doing their whole workout program and all that to get ready in the off season. And and at the time, the USFL had been sp- playing in the spring, mm-hmm. and this is the time when two owners. Uh, Howard Oldenburg, the LA Express owner, where Steve was playing, Steve Young was playing, and Donald Trump, the owner of the New Jersey Generals, where Doug Flutie was the quarterback and Herschel Walker was the tailback. They decided to push the league to move to go head-to-head with the NFL in the fall because they were convinced that by going head-to-head, they could take the NFL to court in an antitrust suit and get a huge settlement, and they'd have to absorb some teams into the NFL. That was now we know years later that that was their thought process, and they actually proved in court that the NFL operated as a monopoly, but it was a naturally occurring monopoly. They didn't get any damages, and the league had held out to go in the fall, um, and now there was no money to operate the league and no TV contracts. They had TV contracts with ESPN in the spring, 
but nobody wanted to give them a TV contract in the fall. They thought they were going to operate on the settlement from the NFL. Mm. The problem was that this court case dragged into the season. NFL camps were already almost over. Um, you know, Canadian Canadian leagues are, Canadian starts in May, so Canadian season's half over. Um, and we knew kind of where this was going. I was trying to get out of my contract and get up to Canada or go do something, but they wouldn't release any of our rights. So finally, they release our rights, and now the NFL camps are almost over, and the NFL's going. All of you just kind of back up, guys. Sorry. We'll take Steve Young, Jim Kelly, Calvin Bryant, Herschel Walker. We'll take some of these guys, you know, the superstars in the league. But you guys that are just role players, nah. We're, we're, it's too late in camp. No mm. place for you. So I was out and and basically squandered the Canadian opportunity. So timing was really bad on that. And I just thought, hey, at my height, it's going to be hard to be in the NFL. It was a place for me when the talent pool was diluted a little bit in the USFL. I could have played in Canada probably forever, but I didn't really feel like that. I thought, well, maybe I'll just go back to graduate school. And so we decided to come back to graduate school at BYU and and uh, kind of put football aside. And then the next year was the strike year when John Makovic called me. I'm like, first of all, I'm not sure I'm in shape to play. And second of all, I just don't feel like I've got friends that are in the league. I'm not going to cross the lines on my friends. And so, so then that was the end of that. End of that timing was really, really bad for me in professional football. But that tells you how BYU was at quarterback at that time. Yeah. BYU's backup quarterback has contract offers in Canadian Football League and the old USFL because the the way BYU had produced quarterbacks over the years, and I played enough that they're like, yeah, this guy could play, um, is a testament to how good BYU was at that position back in those days. Yeah, seriously, that's wild. Okay, so I wanted to ask you about your family situation. So your mom, uh, Barbara, and your dad, Kirk, they're two of the best people I've ever met. They're amazing. Um, what's it like growing up in that household? And how did they sort of shape you? Yeah, so, so my mom you know, is just like an immigrant child, really. Um, and they both came, mom and dad both came from pretty humble beginnings. My, my dad's family were like miners and factory workers in Pennsylvania. My mom's mom and dad, like, so she's first generation. They came through Ellis Island and settled in New York City. Oh, wow. From where? Yeah. Um, from my grandpa came from Wales and my grandma came from Scotland. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so, like, they even had accents when I was growing up. And and so they, they settled in the metro New York. Um, and they eventually moved to Hoboken right across the river, right across the Hudson River. Like, Hoboken now is like a real... I don't know if yuppie is still a word, but it's you know, it's a young urban professional's place to live now. It's like the it place to live because it's right the ferry goes directly to the financial district. Really expensive housing, but back then, you know, my grandpa drove a box truck, and it was the port of Elizabeth is right there, so it was basically a seaport type of a town, shipping and trucking type of a town. And my grandpa was a just a blue collar truck driver kind of guy, um, immigrant kid from Wales, and my grandmother immigrant from Scotland, and they met. And got married, wow. and when they saved up enough money to be able to get out of the city, they moved with my you know, moved with my mom and her little sister, and they moved up out of the city where it was a little more affordable up to up to Elmira, um, and 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 my dad's family had migrated from Pennsylvania up to Elmira, and that's where my dad and mom met. So, yeah, so they came from both families came from really humble beginnings, you know, working class folks. Um, and, uh, I, 
you know, my dad and my dad's older brother, um, you know, they got football scholarships to go play football at Bowling Green. So they were going to get a college education, which was really cool for their family, you know. Um, and, and my mom was one of the first in her family to attend college. So she went to Elmira College. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it really is. My family's a real immigrant story, you know. Um, my, my mom's family, um, my mom is the only member of the church in her entire family. When did um, she join the church? So she, her parents wouldn't let her join the church until after my mom and dad got married. So, so she, she got baptized after they got married. And her family was really active in the Presbyterian church um, and, and have been, you know, very, very active in church, but not, you know. When, when the Mormon church, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as we call it now, of course, left upstate New York, it was a long time before it came back. Um, to, to upstate New York. And, and if you, you know, follow church history, where I grew up is where a ton of church history took place. So in my stake boundaries is Harmony, Pennsylvania, where Joseph did a lot of translating, where the priesthood was restored right on the banks of the Susquehanna River. You know, I grew up in that area. That's awesome. Uh, Pellmire is just a couple miles north. We grew up participating in the pageant, the Hilkmore pageant. Um, that's all in the Finger Lakes region of New York. So all of the restoration of the church took place right where I grew up. So it's a great historic area. There just weren't any members. And my dad's family were converts to the church. Um, so my grandma and grandpa and my aunt and uncle were the first four members of the church in the entire southern tier of New York. And they, oh, wow. they would have church in their front room. Hmm. They had a tiny little branch in their front room. And my uh, my uh Grandpa used to tell me, or my grandma used to tell me a story about um, they were meeting in their front room, and I don't know how many members they had at the time, maybe 20 people that met in that branch there in their parlor or their front room of their house. And um, Spencer W. Kimball was a brand-new apostle, just got ordained to be an apostle, and he was coming through. If you came from the west on a train to the east, you came through Elmira. Mm. And he came through Elmira on a Sunday as a brand-new apostle, as on his way to some big regional conference in the East. Um, and he came to church at their house. And they had just purchased a piano so they could have accompanied music in the branch. But after they took up donations and bought the piano, they realized that nobody in the branch played the piano. <laughs> so they had, this piano. They, learn. they had this piano in the front room. Nobody could play the piano. So they started the opening song. And this is a story my, my, my grandma, Oma, we called her, told me. They played the song. And um, Elder Kimball at the time says, how come nobody's playing the piano? And they said, uh, we got bought a piano, but nobody plays the piano. And he said, I play the piano. And so he accompanied him for the music. So the first accompanied music in where I grew up in, in, in the Elmire branch, which became the Elmire Award, Spencer W. Kimball. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah. And so in, in essence, my, my grandparents and my aunt and uncle, my, my great aunt and uncle were pioneers um, they didn't come across the plains and migrate, but they were pioneers when the church made its way back to upstate New York. Yeah. Um, and then my mom's parents were pioneers, not in the in the church, but pioneers in that they were first generation immigrants on a ship through Ellis Island. We went back to Ellis Island and we found their names on the microfish and the ships manifest that they came through Ellis Island and were processed into the United States. That's incredible. Yeah, it's really, really cool. So, yeah, my, my, my family story is a great immigrant and pioneer 
story on both sides, both sides of my family. So, so my mom and dad grew us, you know, raised us um, to be very grateful about our heritage, you know, and about um, being grateful for the things that we had. We grew up in a really simple home. Um, my dad was one of the first people in his family to get a degree. He got his degree in psychology and, and became a practicing psychologist there and worked with youth um, and, and um, developed the rehab, the rehabilitation services system for the state of New York back while he was back in New York. And um, our, ours was the place where everybody came. All my friends came to our house. And I had some crazy friends, as you might imagine, growing up. They all wanted to be at our house because Grandma and Grandpa always just loved them up. Didn't matter if they'd gotten arrested the week before. Grandma and Grandpa loved them up. <laughs> So sometimes the kids that, that I played football and basketball with, they didn't have a home life at all. They didn't have a dad at home. Some of them didn't have a dad or a mom at home. They were living with a grandma, and they always wanted to come to our house because grandpa and grandma Fowler, or they called them dad and mom Fowler, just treated them um, with just respect and love. So it was it was a great place to grow up. And they raised all of us kids to believe we just do anything. Like you can get out, you, you can do whatever you want. Like when I took an interest in sports and I'm the only boy, I grew up with three sisters, like, yeah, you can do whatever you want. You know, dad played college football at Bowling Green, came from a really humble home, needed to get a scholarship. You can get a football scholarship. You can be as good as you want and and support the practice. Mom and dad would come. My mom would hold for me, you know. Uh, well, she would try to hold, and then we would decide that she kept pulling the ball like Linus, so she needed to go shag balls, and my dad would come hold. Because <laughs> in, in high school, I did all the punting, did all the kicking, Oh. Played quarterback and also started at free safety. So well, then. the only time I came off the field, my junior and senior year. So I started at quarterback as a sophomore. I backed up on the varsity as a freshman. Then I started three years on the varsity at quarterback. My junior and senior year, I I started. At, I was a starting punter, the starting kicker, starting free safety, and starting quarterback. My junior and senior oh my year. God. So I, I I was not on the kick return team. That was it. I was on every other team. They're like you get a breather for one second. Yeah. So, um, but mom and dad would come support. Like when I was growing up, my dad was like, the more things you can do, the more opportunity you have for scholarship. So True. you need to learn how to kick. I'm going to teach you how to punt because my dad punted also in college. He played DN, fullback, and punted. Oh, wow. I'll teach you how to punt. We'll learn from somebody how to kick. My mom would shag balls. My dad would hold. I'd punt. They'd shag balls punting and run. my mom would run them back to me, you know. So just an unbelievably supportive environment where they're just like, hey, you can do whatever you want to do. So I always just believed I could do whatever I wanted to do. Great, great environment to grow up in. I've always loved your mom and dad because they've always been super nice to me. Um, very kind, very nice. I, I can attest to that sort of familial you mm. know, feeling that they provide. Uh, your mom passed away uh, recently. About six weeks ago now. Yeah. Seven weeks ago. How are you holding up with that? I know it's, that's been yeah, tough. It's, it's been hard. It's been hard to to – see my dad, you know, because he's, they've always been just, for 69 years, they were together, which is mm. crazy. Who's together wow. 69 years anymore, right? Um, if you include the three years they dated before they got married, where they went steady, that's what they called it. Yeah. Um, and then the years that they were married, they were, they were a couple for 69 years, inseparable. So that's been the hardest, hardest part is to, you know, there's the void of mom being there supporting everything. And, but, but to watch dad to be by himself has been really hard. Yeah. Really hard, and you know they were such a part. They're they're part of BYU lore. They've uh -huh. they volunteered at student athlete building. They they created that hosting position. Oh, they did 
I don't know how many years. It's it's almost 20 years, I believe, now. That's a staple there. Yeah, that they've been there, and they coordinated that, and they brought other couples into that. And and my dad's rationale for that, and what a lot of people don't know, Tom Holman and I have talked about this. Behind the scenes, now it's not going to be behind the scenes anymore, but uh, because we're going to talk about this and people are going to know, but... Um, so my dad had bypass surgery when he was fairly young in his fifties, and and they they kind of decided that having five bypasses maybe they couldn't go serve a foreign mission or do something that like that when he retired. So he retired, and they were trying to think of something that they could do that they could get back. And my dad's like, I'll tell you what we could do. There's all of those athletes over at BYU. They don't have a team psycholo- psychologist. This is what I'm trained in. This is how I could give back. Oh. Why don't we go over there? We'll, we'll be a grandma and grandpa to people over there, but we'll host and we'll host people that come in, but we'll be there for those athletes. If they need somebody to talk to, I'll talk to them. They won't even know that they're talking to somebody that's had 35 years of of, uh, of youth counseling under his belt as a professional counselor. Oh, wow. And so he says, this is how we can give back. So they approached the folks over there and said, we feel like this is how we can give back. And so so they went there and they became the host. And for you know, it was all of these years, you talk to players – so many players come up to me like, oh, my gosh. I was just, like, at my rope's end. Like, I, I was ready to leave BYU. I was I was frustrated with life. But then I ran into your mom and dad and, you know, to grandma and grandpa. They call them grandma and grandpa. You know, grandpa just took me aside. We just walked around the field. We just had this conversation. I mean, he just got me going in the right direction. And, and I, I, don't, I don't say to him, yeah, you should have got charged 250 bucks for that <laughs> session. Um, but But – he just had he he just has a way of loving people up. He just mm. never judges anybody. Mom's yep. the same way. Yep. So so people feel like they can talk to them. I felt that. Um, yeah. And and the, what they don't realize is not only was he, is he a great dad and a, and she's a great mom and they're a great grandma and a great grandpa. That's thirty five years of professional experience of understanding counseling. So there's that unbelievable love that they express toward people, but there was also an understanding of how to fix things. Right, mm-hmm. so that that's the legacy that he that he wanted to leave, and and how he felt like he could give back, and it was amazing. So, so it's it's hard because he he has a hard time. He doesn't want to go back there yet. You know, he doesn't want to go back over to the student athlete building. And yeah. I know there's tons of people that would like like to see him over there, but he's just he's like I, I can't go back over there without mom. You know, so it's been really really hard. Yeah, really hard. So I love your parents, and I felt that. Yeah, I, I <coughs> that, appreciate that. That they, same feeling. Yeah. Their their legacy is love, is what it is. Yep. So let's talk about your family. So you have uh, kids who are successful in every facet of what they're doing, including Broadway. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So our house is a weird house, because, <laughs> um, and I'm sure there's other houses like this, but most houses aren't huge in the arts and then huge in athletics. It's one of the other typical. Yeah, because typically you got to devote a lot of time to one or the other, yes. or typically that divided interest. I don't know the people that love sports, and I'm sure there are, but but also immerse themselves as much in the art. You can appreciate the arts, but to immerse yourselves in it the way our house has over the years is, I, I think, pretty unique. So, so I'm playing football here, and Brenda was a dance major here. Mm-hmm. So she's she it was starts there big time in the arts. She came to BYU on a theater scholarship. And then, and I came on a football scholarship, and and she was a Cougarette. She was the captain of the Cougarettes, and I was playing on the football team. And so, right from that Power start, um, but but also growing up in my house, I grew up with three sisters who really loved the arts. Um, I think my family, when I took an interest in sports, my dad was just pumped because that was his background, right? Yeah. 
Um, but so I grew up in a house where the arts and sports were both valued equally, right? And so then I meet Brenda here, and and we start to date, and we we get married, and it's like the arts are huge and sports are huge, but Brenda. Her brothers were all big time football players. Um, her, her two older brothers were were really good players. Her brother Bruce was an NFL prospect. Um, he was a All American tight end at, at Weber State back in the day with Sark Arcelanian and that whole group. Six five, two hundred and thirty five pound guy that could run like a gazelle. His senior season, when he was very likely to get drafted, he was going across the middle, got hit in the stomach, went over to the sideline, knocked out of breath, passed out on the bench. They couldn't get him to come to. They rushed him to McAdee Hospital. He perforated his stomach on the hit. Oh, my gosh. They had to open him up from belt to sternum. Basically, he was going toxic and was at risk for dying. They had to clean them all out. And basically, they told him, like, we just cut through your entire abdominal, like, and took everything out and cleaned it all out, and you were at risk of dying, and you're not playing football anymore. Oh, my God! That was the end of his football career. Holy snakes. Uh, he is one of the most crazy athletes I've ever seen. So it's funny that my home growing up was huge in the arts and sports. Brenda's house growing up was huge in the arts and sports. We get together. She's dragging me off to every dance concert there is in the state. I'm dragging her to every football game. Um, but it really wasn't dragging her because this is when I knew I wanted to marry Brenda Birmingham. Back then, we didn't have cell phones. So if you wanted to um, get in touch with somebody, you had to call them on a landline or you just stopped by to see them. So she's a freshman and she's living in the dorms. I'm living up at the Whittingham's house with, with Kyle and Carrie and those guys with the Whittingham's. And uh, I decided that I'm going to – I really like this. I met her at a – Jonathan Plater and I, a teammate, and I decided to crash a Cougarette party. It's just the two of us <laughs> and the entire Cougarette squad. Numbers were good. <laughs> the numbers were good. Um, it's like BYU. It was heaven. <laughs> it was heaven. I'm like, is this heaven? Because I feel like this is heaven. Um, so we crashed a cougarette party, and I was just immediately smitten with Brenda, right? Mm. So I decided I need to stop by and see her. Got her dorm room and that. And I, I stopped by, and you call on the little house phone up to the room, and her roommate, Teresa, answered the phone. And, and I said, have you seen Brenda? She goes, she's here. I just don't know where she is. And I said, she's not down here in the lobby. And, and Teresa said, did you check down in the lounge downstairs? This was Monday night. I go, no, I'll go check downstairs. I go downstairs all by herself. She's watching Monday night football. I'm like, hey, I kind of like this girl and I thought she was beautiful, but I am like full head over heels in love right now. <laughs> she's watching Monday night football on her own. You've got to be kidding me with this. And, and I, I talked to her, and she goes, oh, yeah, yeah, my home, at my house growing up, that's family home evening was Monday night football during football season. That's what we did. Yeah. And she goes, so, yeah, it doesn't matter that my brothers aren't here. I mean, I love it. And I'm thinking, I never thought I would find a girl like this, like this. this. I was relentless to, in pursuit of her, and she was just like, she would literally tell me out loud to my face, you're really fun and really nice, but I just don't think you're the kind of person that I want to marry. But I was okay. Jerem, I was relentless. Like we she she one time I showed up the dorms with with Carrie Whittingham and with one other football player friend of mine, big dudes. And there was this other guy that I knew she was dating at the time. I'm not gonna name names because and and uh I saw him there and I said, Hey, 
we were not going to say his name. What are you doing here? And he said, I have a date with Brenda tonight. And I go, that's funny because I have a date with Brenda tonight. <laughs> and he goes, you really do? And I go, I really do. I, there's got to be some kind of a mix-up. You can't have a date with her tonight. And he goes, well, well, maybe I was mistaken. And I remember carrying those guys in the background going, yeah, I think you're mistaken. <laughs> like my big buddies. <laughs> I think you're mistaken. Like very intimidating. Yeah. And he's like, well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I... Maybe maybe it was a different night. I go. I it had to be a different night because I, I I'm serious, dude. I have a date with her tonight. Okay, he left. So Brenda comes down. She knows she has a date with this guy. She she sees me and Carrie. She goes, Hey, Blaine. Hey, Carrie. Have you seen? It's like Voldemort. I can't so say his and name. So? Have you seen so and so? And we're like, Yeah, he was here, but <laughs> he said he had to go. And asked if we would take his place. She goes, you're not serious. We go, no, we're serious. He said he had to go. That's why we're here. Do you want to go out with us tonight? So the three of us took Brenda on a date that night. Nice. And she didn't find out till the next day what we had done. Then she was super, super mad. Um, <laughs> but it was worth it. But it was so worth it. Because <laughs> then I would say, you're going to go out with a guy that won't even stand up for you? Like, come on. Nice. Like, this is ridiculous. Nice. So one by one, we just eliminated everybody that wanted to date her. So pretty soon... And then she broke up with me. Yeah. And and then I just found the most beautiful girl I could find. I'm not going to name her name either, but I remember who it was. And I found out where Brenda was going to be. I knew she was going to be in the library at Blame. a certain time. And I walked <laughs> through the library no. holding hands no. and with my arm around this beautiful girl. No. Just so that Brenda would be mad. Jeremy, I was relentless. I was desperate for this still, girl. She still came around eventually? Eventually she came around. <laughs> Like I was, like I knew, like I knew from the moment I saw her watching Monday Night Football. She I put up I, with both of these acts. Oh, <laughs> it's eventually she just. I think she just eventually just thought, okay, this dude's just not gonna stop, and I, there, I have no other options at this point because he's That's... he's gonna run everybody out of town. So I might as well date him a little bit more, and then somehow I won her over. But she was pretty convinced that I would never amount to anything and I was a lot of fun but I would never amount to anything cuz I was just fun and I couldn't be serious and <laughs> Brent, so, and Brenda's awesome man she's yeah. great so, okay last few minutes here walk through your kids names and kind of what they've done or do cuz okay. I'm impressed by all of them so Kellen's the oldest and um Kellen was a first team academic all-American here at BYU started 2 years at safety um and uh he um, was a finalist for the Drady Award for the top academic athlete in in the country. He was the Mountain West Student Athlete of the Year for all sports, and um, r- really good player, really athletic player. Um, kind of ran the defense from the back end for for Bronco back in those days. Um, went on a full scholarship to the University of Virginia to law school. Graduated from law school. Went to work for Boston Consulting Group right out of law school. Worked for them. Um, he was in Dallas. Um, they moved him over to Brussels. He was in Brussels. He lived in London for them um, and did work for them in London. Um, and then uh, the I can't remember if it was the current CEO or the founder of 1-800-CONTACTS, who was also a Boston Consulting Group guy, found out about Kellen, who had followed a very similar path to him, and reached out and said, hey, why don't you come help me? run this company here. I need somebody that thinks like me and offered Kellen a piece of the company. We never thought we'd get he and Sarah and our four grandkids back here in Utah. But a couple years ago, they moved back to Utah and he was the executive vice president over 
business development for 1-800-CONTACTS, and now 1-800-CONTACTS just acquired another company and started a whole new division and counts the president of that division. Nice. So, runs a global division of 1-800-CONTACTS from, it's a Draper-based company. So they're here. Nice. So that's Callum. Landon is the next. Landon played here also, um, played corner and on special teams. Um he got into the junior year of his program, recognized he wasn't going to be a starter. He would have contributed and played, but he was in the Masters of Accounting program here, which is was crazy. He was the first Mac student ever to be on the football team. We had a couple that have done it now since. Oh yeah, students that work here barely can handle it's, it. It's unbelievable. Let alone program. football. Yeah. And he realized I can't I can't do football and complete this Mac. So he graduated with honors in the, um, from the MAC program, went to work for um, uh, Deloitte down in Arizona, worked for Deloitte, left Deloitte, and, be, and became partner in a, a accounting consulting firm based back here in Utah called the Conner Group. Actually, they're based in Palo Alto. They had a Utah office because of all the tech here. Left them to become the vice president and controller of a Palo Alto-based company called Nitro, publicly traded company. Left them just recently, and he's now the controller of uh, uh, Entrada. Um, they just put a whole new leadership team together to manage Entrada um, and a bunch of our buddies, uh, Ryan Smith and Todd Peterson, good friends of mine, um, and, and a big investment group just invested $500 million in Entrada because they think it's the next, uh, what do they call them, unicorn? They think it's the next unicorn. They think okay. it's the next Qualtrics in Utah. Landon's the controller there. Nice. Then Nicole, she went through the broadcasting program here. Did Coog Tube and was on air and did all of that and, and got her degree in broadcasting. She married um, Blair Fry, um, and and they moved down to St. George. She did a bunch of marketing and stuff like that down there, and then they started to raise a family. They've got three grandkids. Oh, by the way, Kellen has four of our grandkids. Landon has four of our Landon and Courtney have four of our grandkids. Um, Blair and Nicole have three of our grandkids um, down in St. George, so she's being a mom now, and, and – uh, and Blair is uh, in, in the development real estate business with his family down in St. George. Um, and then Gavin is the next. Gavin uh, played here. Back-to-back -back ACL reconstructions and back-to-back -back years. Nobody comes back from that. Gavin went on to play in 27 straight games after back-to-back -back ACL reconstructions. Incredible. And was basically the leader of special teams, was the special teams player of the year his senior year. Kalani told him, you're going to grad school. Come back and be a graduate assistant. So he came back and worked with Kalani, um, got his master's degree in public administration. Then Kalani's asked him to stay close by, gave him position groups. Gavin's um, responsible for the nickels. Well, now he's responsible for the strong safeties. He and Kalani coach the strong safeties and works with the specialists. Those are his position groups. So he coaches like he has the specialists, the kickers, the punters, the long snappers, and then the strong safeties are Gavin's responsibility. Loves it. Loves working with Kalani. I love Gavin. So, um, yeah, one of them had to get into sports, right? So, and then and then Libby's the baby. And so Libby um, was a music dance theater major here at BYU. When Libby was coming out, she had an opportunity to go to the Tisch School of Performing Arts in New York City at NYU, which is the number one performing arts school in the United States, maybe in the world. And I convinced her that it was so expensive to live in New York that if she would come to BYU for our undergrad, and she can't listen to this because I don't want her to hear this, that if she ever wanted to get an MFA, a Master's in Fine Arts, I would pay for graduate school at NYU if she would take her full ride because she had a Hinckley scholarship here. Um, if she'd take her scholarship here and do her undergrad here, and this is an unbelievable MDT program at BYU. So she made that deal with me, and she came to BYU. And uh, 
she's had a phenomenal career. She married Dallas Lloyd, who was a All Pac-12 safety at and a captain at Stanford during their glory years. Was a, spent a little time with the Bears. Dallas promised me that if she would, if he could get married to her, and go over and support him, they would come back. She would get her degree, and they would move to New York City, and she could chase her dream after he, um, after he got a chance to chase his. Lived up to every promise he made to me. They came back. She got her degree. They moved to New York. And uh, she is currently playing Diana in um, Princess Diana in Diana the Musical on Broadway at the Long Acre Theater in New York City. She's, she worked on another really cool project called, called The Wrong Man with all of the, they call him Hamilton. Alex Lacamoire, the orchestrator from Hamilton. Uh, Thomas Kale was the director of The Wrong Man, the director of Hamilton, and, and all of those folks. Um, that was her big break back on Broadway, and that's led to this opportunity with uh, with Diana on Broadway. So, how about that, man? Yeah, that's pretty cool. So, arts are huge at our house. Yes, they are. And and uh, the funnest thing is opening night two weeks ago. Brenda and I couldn't go because we had basketball and all that. So Libby invited her big sister Nicole to come with her with us. So Nicole and Libby got to walk the red carpet together. I saw that. So cool. That was so cool. So fun. Okay, let's finish with this. You know, some Dr. Seuss. Yeah. We we spit out some rhymes here. Yeah, I don't know if my favorite is maybe 3,000 feet up up the side of Mount Crumpet, he rolled with his load to the tip top to dump it. Papoo to the who's, he was grinchously humming. They're finding out now that no Christmas is coming. I love that one. You have more, don't you? So, oh, I could go on and on. Let's do one what, more. What I used to do is, um, <laughs> when I was going to go on the air in my early years, to warm up my mouth, I would just do Dr. Seuss rhymes. People would be like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> so, um, let's see. Brush, brush, comb, comb. Blue hair is fun to brush and comb. All girls who like to brush and comb should have a pet like this at home. Look at his fingers. One, two, three. How many fingers do I see? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. He has 11. 11. This is something new. I wish I had 11, too. <laughs> These little They're... pets are called the Zeds. They have one hair up on their heads. Their hair grows fast, so fast they say they need a haircut every day. I just go on and on. My One of my favorite books is One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish. And that's just full of great. You know, so many. It's just you're, you're, you're like the most talented person at all these things. That no, you, you, you we just see the broadcaster. You know, what my I mean? my brain has a tremendous capacity to store completely useless information. <laughs> so I I have a tremendous talent. There's so much useless information up in my head. It's crazy. We've given you an outlet on TV, I suppose. <laughs> Well, Blaine, I could talk for hours with you. We haven't even gotten into games. We haven't even gotten into broadcasting. Maybe we'll do part two with you. Another time. We'll do a part two, and we'll yeah. do my favorite games I've ever broadcast because some of them are the greatest moments in BYU sports. Yes. Okay, so. part two, another day with Blaine Fowler. We'll do it. Okay, Blaine. All right, Appreciate man. the time, man. See ya. Okay, that'll do it for us. Listen to previous episodes on the BYU Radio app where podcasts are found. For producer Trent Rhymeshoes, so I'm Jeremy Jordan. And Blaine Fowler, you've just listened to Deep Blue on BYU Radio.